Thanks to the wonderful folks at Anchor.fm. Welcome, listeners, to Tom Reads Your Story. Join voice actor Tom Zania as he reads from social media, news articles, his past audiobook recordings, and other spoken word projects, including those great writing projects that you send in. And now, here's your host, voice actor and podcaster, Tom Zania. Thank you, Mr. Announcer, for that wonderful introduction. Welcome, fans of the spoken word. This is Tom Reads Your Story. Thanks for stopping by. I'm glad you're here. Today, we talk about the rumor of Paul is dead. And I'll be back right after this. The afterlife is not at all what Jack Duffy had expected. A failed suicide attempt launches him into a world that tests his abilities. In this world, he learns more about himself after a lifetime of horrific decisions. Written by Paul B. Kohler and narrated by Tom Zania. Listen to this incredible book by visiting audible.com. A strange rumor has persisted that Paul McCartney died in 1966. The story of Paul is Dead is in many ways a bitter music critique in the guise of an urban legend. The legend suggests that after a vicious fight in the recording studio with the other Beatles, McCartney sped off in his car and died instantly in a crash. The myth suggests the Beatles planted clues to Paul's death in their songs and album art to break the news gently to their fans. The Paul is Dead rumor really started with articles penned by American undergraduates for their school newspapers. Tim Harper at Drake University in Iowa wrote that when you play a portion of the White Album's Revolution No. 9, you can hear repeated over and over the line, turn me on, dead man, but only if you play it backward. Other listeners quickly found that John Lennon appeared to say the line, I buried Paul in strawberry fields forever. Later, Lennon would claim he's actually saying the words cranberry sauce. The Beatles' final album, Abbey Road, received mixed reviews from music critics in October 1969. Then, writing for the University of Michigan's Michigan Daily, Fred Labore wrote a review of Abbey Road with the headline, McCartney Dead, New Evidence Brought to Light. He analyzed the album's famous cover art and concluded that it was a funeral procession being depicted. In white, John was the holy man leading the way. Ringo, dressed in black, was the undertaker. George, looking like a working man in jeans, was the gravedigger. And Paul, out of step with the others and barefoot, was the corpse. He must have died and been replaced with a lookalike. And we're back. You know, I, I'm sure a lot of you listening are like me and lived through the 60s. Not everybody. Lots of millennials might be listening. I'm not quite sure about that. But when I was a kid, eight to 10 years old, I was always, especially in the summer when the basement was nice and cool, I would go downstairs and listen to all the 45s that my older siblings had. 
most of those were the Beatles. Some were some oddball ones uh, that they had bought uh, of artists from the 50s uh, that they liked to listen to, and that I, of course, listened to myself. And, of course, all of these Beatle 45s will always be imprinted in my memory. And it wasn't until later in the 60s, the late 60s, is when the rumor of the death of Paul McCartney came out. And to me, and I think to a lot of people, it sounded believable. I didn't really make a choice as to whether I believed it or not. I just thought it was very odd because uh, conspiracy theories and things like, um, you know, the uh, stories about uh, the earth being flat and that we never went to the moon and stuff like that. That wasn't stuff that I had started thinking about until much later in life. And of course, when I heard that Paul might be dead, um, I didn't uh, I didn't know what to think. I didn't know what to think either way. And, uh, of course, I kept listening to people coming up with these hundreds of uh, clues that were in all of these songs. And after it all blew over, I never really knew what actually happened. And obviously, you know, I, when I started seeing Paul in his later years, I knew it was Paul for some reason. And uh, in what we're going to listen to today, first of all, I'm going to I'm going to play something uh, called "Paul is Dead." It's in Wikipedia. It's for those of you, mostly I think it would be millennials, who don't really know about this story. Uh, it will go through uh, what the public heard, and then a little later, I'm going to play a story from Beetle.net about when. Paul finally spilled the beans and got real specific. And it, it's, a, it's a great article, and I think you're going to like it. First of all, from Wikipedia, Paul is dead. From Wikipedia, Paul is dead. Paul is dead is an urban legend and conspiracy theory alleging that English musician Paul McCartney of the Beatles died on November 9, 1966, and was secretly replaced by a lookalike. The rumor began circulating around 1967, but grew in popularity after being reported on American college campuses in late 1969. Proponents based the theory on perceived clues found in Beatles' songs and album covers. Clue hunting proved infectious, and within a few weeks, had become an international phenomenon. According to the theory, McCartney died in a car crash, and to spare the public from grief, the surviving Beatles replaced him with the winner of a McCartney look-alike contest, sometimes identified as William Campbell or Billy Shears. Afterwards, the band left messages in their music and album artwork to communicate the truth to their fans. These include the 1968 song Glass Onion, in which Lennon sings, Here's another clue for you all, The Walrus Was Paul, and the cover photo of their album Abbey Road, in which McCartney is shown barefoot and walking out of step with his bandmates. 
Rumors declined after an interview with McCartney, who had been secluded with his family in Scotland, was published in Life magazine in November 1969. During the 1970s, the phenomenon was the subject of analysis in the fields of sociology, psychology, and communications. McCartney parodied the hoax with the title and cover art of his 1993 live album, Paul is Live. In 2009, Time magazine included Paul is Dead in its feature of 10 of the world's most enduring conspiracy theories. In early 1967, a rumor circulated in London that Paul McCartney had been killed in a traffic accident while driving along the M1 motorway on January 7th. The rumor was acknowledged and rebutted in the February issue of The Beatles Book, a fanzine. McCartney then alluded to the rumor during a press conference held around the release of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club in May. By 1967, the Beatles were known for sometimes including backmasking in their music. Analyzing their lyrics for hidden meaning had also become a popular trend in the U.S. In November 1968, their self-titled double LP, also known as the White Album, was released, containing the track Glass Onion. John Lennon wrote the song in response to Gobbledygook, said about Sgt. Pepper. In a later interview, he said that he was purposely confusing listeners with lines such as, The Walrus Was Paul, a reference to his song I Am the Walrus, from the 1967 EP and album Magical Mystery Tour. On September 17, 1969, Tim Harper, an editor of the Drake Times Delphic, the student newspaper of Drake University in Des Moines, Iowa, published an article titled, Is Beatle Paul McCartney Dead? The article addressed a rumor being circulated on campus that cited clues from the recent Beatle albums, including a message interpreted as, Turn Me On, Dead Man, heard when the White Album track, Revolution No. 9, is played backwards. Also referenced was the back cover of Sgt. Pepper, where every Beatle except McCartney is photographed facing the viewer, and the front cover of Magical Mystery Tour, which depicts one unidentified band member in a differently colored suit from the other three. According to music journalist Merrill Noden, Harper's Drake Times Delphic was the first to publish an article on the Paul is Dead theory. Harper later said that it had become the subject of discussion among students at the start of the new academic year, and he added, A lot of us, because of Vietnam and the so-called establishment, were ready, willing, and able to believe just about any sort of conspiracy. In late September 1969, the Beatles released the album Abbey Road as they were in the process of disbanding. On October 10th, the Beatles' press officer Derek Taylor responded to the rumor stating, Recently, we've been getting a flood of inquiries asking about reports that Paul is dead. We've been getting questions like that for years, of course, but in the past few weeks we've been getting them at the office and home, night and day. I'm even getting telephone calls from disc jockeys and others in the United States. Throughout this period, McCartney felt isolated from his bandmates in his opposition to their choice of business manager, Alan Klein, and distraught at Lennon's private announcement that he was leaving the group. 
With the birth of his daughter Mary in late August, McCartney had withdrawn to focus on his family life. On October 22nd, the day that the Paul is Dead rumor became an international news story, McCartney, his wife, Linda, and their two daughters traveled to Scotland to spend time at his farm near Campbelltown. In November 1969, Capitol Records sales managers reported a significant increase in sales of Beatle catalog albums, attributed to the rumor. Rocco Catena, Capitol's vice president of national merchandising, estimated that this is going to be the biggest month in the history in terms of Beatle sales. The rumor benefited the commercial performance of Abbey Road in the U.S., where it comfortably outsold all of the band's previous albums. Sgt. Pepper and Magical Mystery Tour, both of which had been off the chart since February, re-entered the Billboard Top LP's chart, peaking at number 101 and number 109, respectively. A television special dedicated to Paul is Dead was broadcast on WOR in New York on November 30th, titled Paul McCartney, The Complete Story, Told for the First and Last Time. It was set in a courtroom and hosted by celebrity lawyer F. Lee Bailey, who cross-examined Labour, Gibb, and other proponents of the theory, and heard opposing views from witnesses such as McCartney's friend Peter Asher and Alan Klein. Bailey left it to the viewer to determine a conclusion. Before the recording, Labour told Bailey that his article had been intended as a joke, to which Bailey sighed and replied, Well, we have an hour of television to do. You're going to have to go along with this. McCartney returned to London in December. Bolstered by Linda's support, he began recording his debut solo album at his home in St. John's Wood titled McCartney and recorded without his bandmates' knowledge, it was one of the best-kept secrets in rock history until shortly before its release in April 1970, according to author Nicholas Schaffner, and led to the announcement of the Beatles' breakup. In his 1971 song, How Do You Sleep?, in which he attacked McCartney's character, Lennon described the theorists as freaks who were right when they said you was dead. The rumor was also cited in the hoax surrounding the Canadian band Claytoo. After a January 1977 review of their debut album, 347 EST, sparked rumors that the group were, in fact, the Beatles. In one telling, this theory contended that the album had been recorded in late 1966, but then mislaid until 1975, at which point Lennon, Harrison, and Starr elected to issue it in McCartney's memory. Labour later became notable as the bassist for the Western swing group Riders in the Sky, which he co-founded in 1977. In 2008, he joked that his success as a musician had extended his 15 minutes of fame for his part in the rumor to 17 minutes. In 2015, he told the Detroit News that he is still periodically contacted by conspiracy theorists who have attempted to present him with supposed new developments on the McCartney rumors. And, of course, that was Paul is Dead from Wikipedia. I forgot to mention 
before that, you heard something from YouTube. Um, and it was mostly for the people I'm talking about, mostly millennials who may not have ever even heard of that whole thing, that whole story. Uh, it was called BBC Real. That was the name of the show. Uh, and that was called A Secret Message in an Album Cover. I, of course, copied that from YouTube. So uh, if you don't see me around anymore, it's because they put me in jail for putting this little story about Paul McCartney and copied it. But I do what I do. So this next uh, thing I'm going to play for you is me reading uh, from Beatle.net. And it's it's about Paul basically spilling the beans. Apparently he was on a trip to New Orleans and somehow either accidentally or maybe he had planned on it, I'm not sure. He starts talking about how all of this uh, happened and what the real answers are uh, uh, as to how it was constructed. Okay. And uh, here it is. From Beatle.net. From Beatle.net, Paul McCartney admits Beatles planned death hoax. April 16, 2011. By Bruce Spitzer. While on a recent quick vacation in New Orleans, Paul McCartney let his guard down and admitted what some Beatle fans have suspected for years. He confirmed that the Paul is dead clues found in several Beatles album covers and songs, were deliberately planted by the group as part of an elaborate scheme dating back to the summer of 1966. According to McCartney, the plan was formulated by manager Brian Epstein. Brian dropped by the studio to hear the playback of our latest single, Paperback Writer. He didn't like it one bit. Not a love song, he said. He was concerned that the press and our fans wouldn't get it. He told us, People want love songs. They won't spend money for a song about a novel writer. You boys are going to blow it with this one. But by this time, we were running the show, not Brian. We insisted that Paperback Writer would be our next single and told him that the song represented the new direction our songwriting was going in. When contacted in London... Former Beatles press agent Tony Barrow confirmed Brian's concerns. Brian was into traditional love songs. He told Paul to come up with another Yesterday or Michelle for the next single. Imagine his shock when he heard Paperback Writer and Rain. Not only were they not love songs, but they were so loud. We didn't know it at the time, but the Beatles had recorded the first heavy metal single. Not exactly till there was you or a taste of honey. I was worried, too. I wondered, had the boys gone too far this time? Brian became even more concerned when he imagined an album full of unconventional songs. While a fan might take a chance on a single, an album purchase was a big thing in those days. Due to its higher price, youngsters, particularly those in the U.K., were very careful about buying albums. That is why the Beatles often issued an EP from an album containing four of its best tracks. So Brian came up with a plan 
to help sell albums in the event he was right about the dangerous new direction the group was heading in. Paul explained, When I told him our future albums would be dominated by songs about interesting people and places, his heart sank. He didn't think people would buy such albums and came up with this great idea to push sales in the event he was right and we were wrong. The idea was that we would plant clues in our songs and album covers that one of us had died in a car wreck. If, after a few albums, our records weren't selling well, we'd leak out word about the clues and let our fans and the press take over. People would buy the albums to see and hear the clues. We thought, wow, that's an incredible idea. We realized it would be great fun to have all those clues sitting there undiscovered until people started going nuts looking for them all. Tony Barrow also thought the plan was brilliant. Nothing re-energizes a singer's career like his death. Do you really think Buddy Holly would have been so famous had he not died in that plane crash? Same for Richie Valens and certainly that one-hit wonder Big Bopper with his Chantilly Lace song. And how about Otis Redding? He never had a number one hit till after he died in a plane crash. The fact that Brian came up with a car crash shows his genius. Airplane crashes were the norm. Having sold the group on the idea, the Beatles had to decide which one of them was to die. Brian wanted the victim to be Ringo because he was the most popular Beatle in the all-important U.S. market, but the drummer wanted nothing to do with it. Tony Barrow recalls, Ringo flat-out refused to be the one. He said, Being painted red in a movie is one thing, but pretending to be dead's another. I'm superstitious. Those clues might make it happen. Brian was disappointed because he knew Ringo was the most sympathetic Beatle. You know Ringo got more mail from America than any other members of the group combined. After Ringo turned down the opportunity to die, the honor of being a dead Beatle was up for grabs. According to Paul, George said right away he didn't feel comfortable faking his death. But it sure got him thinking. A few days later, he showed up at a session with a new song called The Art of Dying. We didn't think it was that good a song, so we never recorded it. George later improved the lyrics and included it on his first album. Paul's recollections are backed by the original lyrics to the song, which appear in George's I, Me, Mine book. The 1966 version of the song referred to Brian Epstein, who was the mastermind behind the death clues. It contained the line, then nothing Mr. Epstein can do will keep me here with you. With Ringo and George not willing to die for the good of the group, it came down to John and Paul, with both thinking it would be fab to be dead. Paul recalls, John wanted to be the dead Beatle, but this time I didn't cave in to John like I did on the songwriter credits. I thought it should be me, because I was the second most popular Beatle. Brian agreed, it should be me because he was worried that once the clues became known, people might think it was a John practical joke if John was supposedly dead. But me, Brian thought, no one would suspect Paul for rigging his own death. 
They think John's the clever one. So I got to die. A few days after the paperback writer listening session, the group was at Brian's office when photographer Bob Whitaker dropped by with the pictures from the butcher session. Brian asked Whitaker to shoot a picture of Paul in steamer trunk to symbolize his lying dead in a coffin. Paul picks up the story. Bob thought it was too direct, so he suggested we stand the trunk upwards and have me sit in it with the others standing around. That way, it would only look like I was lying in a coffin if the cover was turned sideways. Bob had Ringo place his hand on the trunk lid like he was closing the coffin. Brilliant. Brian told us to throw some clues into our songs. Right away, John came up with I'm Only Sleeping, as if Paul isn't dead, he's only sleeping. Pretty subtle. Most people missed that clue, and that was one of the first. The coffin trunk photo was sent to Capitol to serve as the cover for the American album Yesterday and Today. But when Brian saw the cover mock-up, he began having second thoughts about using the photo so early in the game. He was concerned that people might suspect Paul was dead a lot sooner than the group wanted clues to be discovered. So Brian sent Capitol the butcher photo, knowing that it might ultimately be rejected, but at least it would deflect attention away from the provocative coffin trunk cover. The plan worked to perfection with the butcher cover causing so much controversy that when it was replaced by the trunk cover, no one noticed it showed Paul lying in a coffin. One of the casualties of the plan was Robert Freeman's unused cover for Revolver. Paul explains that for Revolver, Robert Freeman came up with a great cover image, but there was no death clue in it. I asked Klaus Wurman to do a pen and ink with a photo collage so we could throw in some clues. I had him place an image of my face in my ear. That represented a beetle crawling out of the ear of my buried corpse. You know, insects get into coffins and mix with the dead bodies, crawling through eye sockets, ear openings, and the like. Very creepy and very subtle. And the other clue came from Klaus drawing my face in a side profile, looking to the left. The others were drawn looking forward. When you turn the cover on its side, I'm looking upward, just like I'd appear on a morgue slab or if I were buried underground. We really were into having clues appear when you turned our covers sideways. I'm surprised nobody caught those revolver clues. According to Tony Barrow, there was one other clue planted on Revolver. John had this really weird song that had no title, so he called it Mark the First. Later he came up with The Void to symbolize the void left in the group by Paul's death. Ringo thought that was too subtle, so he came up with the perfect phrase for describing the direction the group would go in if Paul really were dead. And that was Tomorrow Never Knows. Ringo was great at stuff like that. By the time the Beatle recorded Sgt. Pepper, the plan really took off. Tony Barrow recalls, Brian thought Tomorrow Never Knows was way out there. You can imagine his fear of an entire album of songs like that. He was terrified that Sgt. Pepper would be viewed as pretentious nonsense. 
He told the boys to throw in a bunch of clues on that one. The first song recorded for Sgt. Pepper was Strawberry Fields Forever, though it ended up being used as a single. At the end of the song, John was supposed to repeat I Buried Paul several times, but that was too obvious. So instead he said Cranberry Sauce and then slurred his words so that I Buried Paul sounded like I'm very bored. The plan worked as it took over two years before anyone realized what he was really saying. Later songs had clues. Paul admitted that She's Leaving Home contained the time the car wreck supposedly occurred, Wednesday morning at five o'clock as the day begins. The line, Meeting a Man from the Motor Trade, tied in the motor vehicle, and, of course, A Day in the Life was about a car crash. According to Paul, the drug references were just a smokescreen to deflect attention away from the car crash. You know, he blew his mind out in a car could mean his head was crushed or he was doing drugs. Take your pick. The cover was full of clues. The crashing car, Paul's base made of flowers, Paul having his back to the camera on the back cover, the hand over Paul's head, and the infamous OPD patch on Paul's uniform, which was Paul McCartney's favorite pepper clue. We had to work hard on that one. Someone told John that in America the letters OPD stood for officially pronounced dead. I remembered I had this patch with the letters OPP, which I got in Canada. I think it stands for Ontario Police Precinct or something like that. So I got the idea to put the patch on my uniform sleeve and shoot the picture so that the lower part of the second P would not be visible, thus making it look like OPD. I was quite pleased the way it came out. Although the sales of Revolver and Pepper made Brian realize that the clues probably weren't needed to sell records, the group kept creating more and more clues. According to Paul, it was so neat coming up with clues that we kept doing them even though we never thought they'd be needed to sell albums. It was great mischievous fun. When Brian died, we really went wild with it. For Magical Mystery Tour, I wanted to wear a black flower on my jacket. The florist thought Alistair Taylor was nuts when he insisted they send us a black carnation. We became worried people would catch on when they saw the Magical Mystery Tour booklet because the clues were so obvious. The four or five musicians, the I was sign, but no one caught on. Paul stated that placing the clues in the songs was even more fun than the visual images. Ringo had this old song, Don't Pass Me By, which he had refused to record for years. But I realized it could be used for a clue. I gave him the line, You were in a car crash and you lost your hair and we did great stuff with backwards tape loops and mumbling. John going, Paul is a dead man, miss him, miss him. Some of the clues were easy and obvious. John's glass onion even told the fans what was going on with its line, and here's another clue for you all, the walrus was Paul. But some were quite intricate. According to Paul, the toughest one was Revolution 9. We had to come up with a phrase to go number nine when you played it backwards. Our plan was to have it go 
number nine on the record, but when you played it backwards, it would sound like Paul is dead. When we recorded Paul is dead and played it backwards, it didn't go number nine. It sounded more like Pythagorean theorem. The phrase Maca is dead sounded like thermonuclear when we played it backwards. We experimented for hours until Alan Parsons came up with Turn Me On Dead Man. When we reversed the tape, it sounded like he was saying number nine, number nine. So that's how we did it. Abbey Road engineer Alan Parsons remembers the session well. We spent hours recording different phrases until I lucked into Turn Me On Dead Man. When I played the tape backwards and heard number nine, well, it was one of the greatest moments of my life. We were all sworn to secrecy about the clues, but now that Paul's let the cat out of the bag, I can talk about it. I later recorded my own song about looking for clues, Eye in the Sky. The last batch of clues were planted on the album cover to Abbey Road, which was designed by Paul. McCartney came up with the idea to stage his own funeral. George, in the role of the gravedigger, dressed in work clothes. Ringo, the funeral director, wore a black suit. John, the angel, wore white. Paul was barefoot, as it is the custom in several cultures to bury people without their shoes. In a subtle touch, the left-handed McCartney held a cigarette in his right hand. This was to imply that the Paul who had been with the group since mid-1966 was a right-handed imposter. Paul recalls the other major Abbey Road clue with fondness. I've always liked puns, so I wanted to have a Volkswagen Beetle represent me. Alistair Taylor arranged for a friend of his to park his VW Beetle on the street by the studio. Alistair and I placed a special license tag we had made the night before on the car. It said, 28 if, meaning that I would have been 28 if I had lived. Unfortunately, I outthought myself on that one. I was only 27 at the time, but I told Alistair to paint it as 28 because I didn't think Abbey Road would come out until I was 28. That's because I was sure that the Get Back album would come out first. By the time we decided to put out Abbey Road first, I had forgotten about that clue, so we didn't have the picture altered to have the tag read 27 if. When John told the others he was quitting the group, Paul began thinking it was time to expose the clues. I was always nervous before a record came out, you know. Would people like it? And in this case, what if word leaked out that John had quit? We were all worried that the album would bomb, and when word spread that John was out, we'd be forgotten. No one would buy our latest LP or our old records. The clincher was a pair of bad reviews published in the New York Times and Rolling Stone. I thought, oh shit, no one likes the long medley on side two. So I had Mal Evans go to Detroit and tell some college kids about the clues. One of the guys phoned in some of the clues to a radio station there. That was all it took. Once people started looking for clues, they were easy to spot. The American press was fascinated with the story. Brian's plan worked to perfection. Not only did sales for Abbey Road take off, 
But people began buying Sgt. Pepper, Magical Mystery Tour, and the White Album to see and hear the clues. Paul hid away at his farm in Scotland to further fuel the hoax. When a reporter from Life magazine finally caught up with him, Paul deadpanned, If I were dead, I'd be the last to know. The Beatles and their inner circle kept the clue a caper for over 30 years. Not only do we now know that the Beatles deliberately planted the clues, but we also know that it was part of a brilliant marketing plan formulated by manager Brian Epstein back in 1966. As for why Paul finally revealed the secrets behind the scheme, we may never know if it was an accidental slip-up on his part or a plan to reignite sales of the Beatles catalog. Oh, I thought that was a very interesting story. And now I know the specifics, the specifics about that whole thing. It sort of just faded away, you know, and I think it did for most people. And this story sort of nails it as to how it all went down and what was, what was really going on. And that should do it for this episode. If you enjoyed your visit today, please, please tell your friends. Be sure to email me at tomreadyourstory at yahoo.com if you have questions or comments about the show. As always, thanks, Anchor.fm, for the chance to have an ongoing podcast. I greatly appreciate it. Until next time, stay safe and take care. For more information on Tom's availability for your e-learning, commercial, audiobook, or video project, visit his website at www.tomzvoices.weebly.com. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Tom Reads Your Story.